Psalm 32, the word of the Lord. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely, when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Well, before we dive into Psalm 32, I think we need a little bit of some background. Psalm 32 kind of goes together with Psalm 51, which is probably better known. Um, But they both relate to the same incident in David's life. And you notice there under the headings, it says, Psalm of David, a Moscow. The background is this in David's life. Many of you are familiar with it. It's probably the, next to his killing Goliath is probably the most famous incident in David's life. Or maybe I should say infamous. It has to do with his adultery with Bathsheba. And what happened was the Israelites were at war with some other nation, David had sent his armies off in charge. They were in charge of Joab, was the the general in charge. And they were fighting. David stayed home. And he notices this beautiful woman bathing, Bathsheba. He has her brought to the palace. He commits adultery with her. He sleeps with her. And then sometime later, he gets word that she is pregnant. Well, she is also the, the wife of Uriah, who is one of David's mighty men. That means he's one of David's trusted and faithful army officers and blessed by the Lord with strength. So he's out there fighting in this battle. So David says, okay, I've got to cover this up. So he sends word out to bring Uriah back, hoping that he'll go home and be with his wife for a couple of days so he can cover up the fact that she's pregnant and hoping that nobody does the math. Well, it doesn't work, because Uriah is too good a soldier. He's not going to go to his home where he's nice and comfortable while his men are out there on the battlefield. So David decides he's going to send word to his general Joab to be sure that Uriah is put out in front of the army, in front of the battle, where he's sure to be killed. And sure enough, he is. So David thinks he has covered up adultery, but what he's actually done on top of that is he's committed murder. So that is the background of these two psalms, 51 and 32. 
David is confronted by the prophet Nathan, who points out his sin to him. Now, in Psalm 51, it's very, very uh, much um, a little more graphic in, in what David is going through. And some of you may recognize these verses. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And then later on, in verse 10, verses that we're even more familiar with, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Psalm 51. This comes probably shortly after he's been confronted by Nathan with his sin. The Psalm 32 feels like it comes a little bit afterwards, after David has processed this for a while. And he's gone through a lot, emotionally and spiritually, and then he writes Psalm 32. St. Augustine said this was his favorite psalm. He had it inscribed on his wall next to near his bed as he was dying so that he could read it every day. And I like what the preacher and commentator G. Campbell Morgan said about this. He said, this is a psalm of penitence, but it is also a psalm of a ransomed soul rejoicing in the wonders of the grace of God. Sin is dealt with, Sorrow is comforted. Ignorance is instructed. It's a great summary of this psalm. Now notice <clears throat> underneath Psalm 32 where it says a maskil. Uh, we've seen this before. Maybe you're not familiar with this. But it's a Hebrew term that for a, uh, it means a, a poem of instruction, a teaching psalm. But it's not, it has a bigger, deeper meaning than that. It isn't meant just to be instructed for information. It's not like memorizing something so you'll pass the test at the end of the week. It, is, it means to make to understand. To make to understand. Deeper than just knowing it, but to really understand it. That's what David is trying to do here. It is also categorized as a penitential psalm. <clears throat> Penitence is one of those churchy words we don't use very often. But it's a feeling of sorrow, pain, or guilt because of someone's sin. Now, the confession itself does not take place in the psalm. We don't see that. He actually confesses here. And the sin is not identified here either. It's not identified in Psalm 51 either. But we know that that's what it's from. But what David is doing is, is relating his experience of confessing and his experience of confessing his sin and experiencing receiving God's forgiveness. Someone wrote it as a testimony to the benefits of confession and forgiveness, but also to God's character as a gracious, forgiving God. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said this, The experience of one believer affords rich instruction to others. It reveals the footsteps of the flock and so comforts and directs the weak. So that we can learn from the experiences of fellow Christians. This psalm is recited by Jews at the end of the Day of Atonement. That is the highest holy day on the Jewish calendar. This year it starts at sundown September 25th and ends at sundown September 26th. It is characterized in Leviticus by some elaborate 
rituals, particularly that those of two goats. One goat is killed and the blood is sprinkled. It's symbolic of the goat being a substitutionary sacrifice. Instead of the sinner being killed, the goat is killed in his place. Okay? And the other goat, they pray over it. They lay hands on the goat. They pray over it. Symbolically, the sin of the worshiper is transferred onto the goat, and then the goat is set out in the wilderness. And some of you know what that's called. What is that called? What is the, what's the goat? The scapegoat. That's the scapegoat. So why, why do we confess when we come together on Sunday mornings? When we get to confession, which normally is earlier in the service, we would have already done that by now, but isn't that kind of a downer to stop and confess our sins? The 21st century church usually avoids making much of sin whenever possible. It's not very appealing. It may not make people feel good or want to come back, and and we want them to come back, right? Church growth. We want them to come back and hear the gospel. And the word confession probably conjures up some old pictures of Roman Catholic ritual where you go to the priest and confess your sins that you committed since the last time you went to confession. But doesn't that take us back a few centuries? This is the 21st century after all. Why would we do that? Because we do not feel poor and needy. David uses that. He doesn't use that phrase in this psalm, but he uses it in a few other psalms. Psalm 40, 70, 86, and 109. He describes himself as poor and needy. We don't feel that way. We are strong. We are empowered. That's a big buzzword, to be empowered, right? We are consumers, shopping for what we want to hear and what will benefit us right now. And in worship, we want joy and celebration. We want new. We want innovative we want to hear about love. We don't want to hear about judgment. We want to hear about freedom to be who you are and who you want to be. That's what we're looking for, isn't it? But the irony is this, that hopefully we will see that in confession, it unlocks the door to all of those things. Psalm 32 shows us that we can experience those things if we honestly humble ourselves before God. Now, all commentators have their own way of outlining their scriptures when they, when they write about them, particularly the Psalms. And this is the one I found the most helpful for Psalm 32, the outline we have here. First of all, the first two verses are about the blessings of forgiveness. Verses 3 through 5, burden and release. Verses 6 and 7, prayer and protection. Verses 8 and 9, the divine response, God's response, and then verses 10 to 11, human response, our response. So now let's delve into the psalm. The blessings of forgiveness. Look at the first couple of verses with me. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David says one is blessed when their sin has been dealt with, when they've dealt with their sin and experienced God's cleansing power. The word blessed from the Hebrew actually means happy. And literally in Hebrew, this, this phrase means 
Oh, how happy. Oh, how happy is the one whose sins have been completely forgiven by God. And then David used four different words for sin. Now here we have what some might call churchy words because we don't necessarily use these words anywhere else. But we're going to take a look at them because we're probably familiar with them, although we may not know exactly what they mean. But someone outside the church may not have any idea what they mean. And so it is helpful for us if we try to explain our faith to someone outside the church to know what these mean. So the first word he uses is transgression. And that's a picture of crossing the line. Crossing over the line is rebelling against God's authority. God has set these moral boundaries and we cross over them. The word sin is basically, it's, a, it's an archery picture. It means missing the mark. It means you're shooting an arrow at a target and you miss. Falling short of God's standards. And then there's the word iniquity that's used later on in verse 5. And in some of your translations, if you have New King James and maybe NASB, that's used in uh, verse 2 as well. Iniquity. Now that's probably a word you have not used at the dinner table for a while. But it's a great word. It has some interesting picture in it. It means straying from the straight path. It's a picture of being crooked. It describes the inner character of a person. It's crooked, twisted is another word that's used. Crooked and twisted, iniquity. And then deceit, trickery, falsehood. In this context, it kind of suggests not only deceiving others, but self-deception. This fits David's train of thought. Is David really deceiving God? Does he think he's deceiving God, or is he deceiving himself? There are examples earlier in David's life. In 1 Samuel chapters 27, 29, and 30, we find David living a double life. He's being pursued by King Saul. God has rejected Saul, and Saul is jealous of David. He's also gone a little mad. And so he's had his armies pursuing David and his men for several years. And so what David does at some couple of points is he goes and hides in the land of the Philistines. Anybody find anything strange about that? Who is Goliath? Goliath was a Philistine. David killed him. You think the Philistines had forgotten that? But they have a common enemy at the moment. David is Saul's enemy. The Philistines are Saul's enemy. We'll get together and we'll defend ourselves against Saul. So David is constantly lying to the Philistines about what he's, he does every day. He's living a double life. He thinks he's got it covered. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, A forgiven life must put away all deception. Be honest. May God make you honest. Do not deceive yourself. Have an honest religion or have no religion at all. Proverbs 28.13 says, He who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. And we find in 1 John that Linda led in our responsive reading this morning. 1 John 1.8-10 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just 
and will purify us from all unrighteousness. So in verse 2, David says, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. To count against means to, not to charge it against him. Or in some of your uh, translations, it might say impute. Now, there's another word you probably haven't used at the dinner table recently. Impute is actually a bookkeeping term. And it means to be credited to or count against. Paul uses that in Romans 4. He uses this, this term, and he uses this example. Because we have no righteousness of our own, because we are sinners. But Jesus Christ had perfect righteousness, and Romans 4 tells us that when we believe in him, that is, we trust that Jesus' sacrifice paid the penalty once and for all, and there's nothing more that we can add to it, nothing more that we could do differently or make it better or pay the penalty on our own. If we believe in that, God considers or credits Jesus' perfect righteousness to us. I hope that's clear, because that's the righteousness we have. We have none of our own. That's a downer. But we have Jesus' righteousness. He's perfect. That's pretty good. God covers our sin in a way that we would cover something offensive to us. Have you ever thought of our sin being offensive to God? So the sacrifice of Christ now stands between our sin, our moral failure, and him. He sees Jesus instead. Verses 3 and 4, the burden and release. David describes this terrible physical and emotional pain that he goes through. He's under a heavy burden. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And we know about that right now, don't we? Not feeling really energetic when we're outside? (laughs) We don't know exactly what God did to David, what he may have afflicted him with, but we do know the description of how it felt to him. And he realizes that God is angry with him and has not forgiven him. David was miserable for nearly a year until he humbled himself and brought it all before God. Do we take God's forgiveness for granted? David apparently didn't realize he hadn't been forgiven. And it finally dawned on him. And another note, a disclaimer, is every sickness or adversity a sign of punishment from God? Of course not. No. Just read the book of Job. And even Jesus talks about that. But in David's case, it did. And because of the heavy hand of God upon him, he finally realizes what he should have done in the first place, and that is to acknowledge his sin, go to God and confess it before him, and pours it out verbally. He makes a verbal confession. It's like the prodigal son, right? who finally hits rock bottom and realizes he needs to go back to his father and say, I'm not worthy to be called your son. He returns to his father. So David hits that point. And God could have just let him go, like he let Saul go. Saul was so disobedient that God finally rejected him as king and just let him go. But he doesn't do that to David. David, he is disciplining as a son. Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12 says this, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke. 
because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. And that's also quoted in Hebrews chapter 12. So this is not a judge punishing a criminal. It's a loving father dealing with his disobedient child to bring him willingly to the place of surrender. To forgive someone's guilt is to remove the penalty. He doesn't have to pay the price. David's, the price that David would have paid was to, he would have been killed by God. He would have died. But God let him live. He did not die. Now guilt, that's another dirty word. That's a dirty word in our society. It's even dirty in some churches. Because our culture has spent the last several decades trying to do away with guilt. We've all seen the commercials, right? Guilt-free desserts. You can, you can eat this dessert without being feeling guilty that you've gone off your diet. Guilt is not healthy. And we go to therapy to try to get rid of guilt. And in some cases, that's a good thing. But we also want a guilt-free religion. One that promotes our welfare and not gives us bad feelings about ourselves. The problem is that guilt is to our conscience what pain is to our body. It's a warning that something is wrong. And if left unchecked, it will get more serious. It will become a bigger problem. It will spread. And the removal of guilt can be very painful. I think a great illustration of this uh, was written in uh, C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader. In it, there's a spoiled brat named Eustace, okay? And Eustace, because of the sin of greed, turns into a dragon. I don't have time to go through the whole scenario, but they're on this island, and he turns into a dragon. Now, there are some things about being a dragon that he thinks is pretty cool, but it also turns out that he'd like to be a boy again. He can't talk to his friends. He can't use his arms and legs like he used to. So he's a dragon, and he can't do anything about it until the Christ character, the great lion Aslan, shows up and says, you've got to get rid of all those scales. So he tries picking off the scales, and they seem to be coming off, but they never seem to end. He can't get rid of them. He tries several times. It doesn't work. And finally, Aslan says, I'm going to have to take them off with his lion claws. I will peel them off. That's going to be a little more painful. But he lets Aslan do it, and he peels them off. And yes, it hurts, but the burden is being lifted, and he begins to feel like a boy again. And the pain is finally gone. Verse 5 is the turning point in this psalm. Growing up in the Lutheran church, This verse where it says, um, I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the the guilt of my sin was often used, not every Sunday, it just seemed like every Sunday sometimes, as a lead-in to a prayer of confession. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It's a turning point in the psalm, but it's not about a turning point to, in God, for God. It isn't that God changed his attitude. It's not that God's anger just you know, decided he wasn't going to be angry anymore. The real change is in David. 
It's about David's silence. When he breaks the silence and comes to God, things turn around. It's like the prodigal son coming back to the father. That's the change. The father hadn't changed. But the prodigal son's attitude changed. And so David changes. And so like the father of the prodigal son, he finds that God is there waiting for him. The father is there waiting for him. What David had to do was openly confess, stop deceiving himself and confessing his sin. James L. Mays writes in his commentary that the silence is the rejection of God's grace. David has deceived himself into thinking, I've got this. And again, back to 1 John. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So David confesses. So what does that mean to confess? Well, it is a, I think the simplest definition is it's agreeing with God about the nature of my sin and who I am. It's about agreeing with him about the nature of the sin, that it's bad, it offends God, and it will destroy me, spiritually at least, if not physically in David's case. Now, the removal of guilt and the penalty doesn't necessarily mean the removal of the consequences. Some of you may be thinking, yeah, but... Well, Warren Wiersbe addresses that in his, his uh, commentary. He says, God in his grace forgives us, but God in his government says, you reap what you have sown. David faced a bunch of consequences because of this sin. First of all, the son that was born to Bathsheba, her firstborn son there, dies. Okay? Then later, one of David's older sons, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar. Another older son, Absalom, in revenge, kills Amnon. Absalom then decides he's going to rebel against David and take over the kingdom. And during the rebellion, Absalom is killed. And and even after David dies, there's still another son, Adonijah, who decides he's going to challenge Solomon for the throne. And he's killed. Just one big happy family. (laughs) 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow from our guilt drives us towards God, like the prodigal son, like David, brings us to God. But worldly sorrow drives us away from God. That brings condemnation and brings hopelessness. That's a tool of Satan. Does our guilt make us feel like we want to go to God? Or hide from God. That's what makes a big difference. We get to verse 6. We hear the section on prayer and protection. Therefore let everyone who is godly pray to you while he may be found. Surely the might, when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. So David now goes from his personal experience relating that to including all of us. Let everyone who is godly. And who is that? The prayer of the godly 
is a prayer of repentance because the godly know they need it. The ungodly have no idea. It's like the Beatitudes. Blessed, is, uh, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The ones that know they need God. This also may be a fulfillment of a verse in Psalm 51, where David, after he goes through all this stuff in the first, in Psalm 51, says, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners will be converted unto you. And that's what he's doing here. He is instructing, like he promised in Psalm 51. Is there anyone who does not have to deal with their sin? Anyone here that does not have to deal with their sin? Don't raise your hand. But think about that. Do we take God's forgiveness for granted? He is holy. It's very easy to say, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Do we have any idea what that means? How, more, how different, how other God is from us. But this verse not only contains, not only contains that promise that, that uh, God could be found, but that there's a warning because there's a time limit. While you can be found. Isaiah 55 says the same thing. Isaiah says a few hundred years later, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. There's a time when that door will be shut. The honest, humble, heartfelt prayer leads to assurance. So like in 1 John again, it says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. And Hebrews mentions this also. There's a great section here on our confidence to go before God. Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Verse 7, You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. And go back up to the, just to the end of verse 6 there. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. This, this mighty waters or flood of great waters in some translations is not necessarily physical or the, the material things. It's, we often, well, it could be, but we often think of it as, you know, all the, the dangers around us. But it probably means in this context an overwhelming sense of pain and guilt like he's describing in verses 3 and 4. That overwhelming pain and guilt. And we see this also in Psalm 42, verse 7. It says, Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. Those are feelings of someone who feels overwhelmed by a sinful nature, and overwhelmed by God. 
But David has gone from hiding from God to finding that God is his hiding place. Another great example from the Old Testament, and I hope, and I do this every time I preach, I want want you to see the the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because it's just all there. (laughs) Um, There's a story in Exodus 33 where Moses goes up to the top of Mount Sinai the second time. He's already gotten the Ten Commandments. And that's another long story. But anyway, he goes up at the top of Mount Sinai again. And he's having this long conversation with God. He's up there a long time. And he wants God to show him his glory. And God says, okay, I will show you my glory, but you can't see my face and live. No man can see my face and live. But I will show you my back when my glory passes by. So he takes Moses and puts him on the top of a big rock. And then, as his glory is about to pass by, he takes Moses and puts him in a cleft of that rock. That's why I use that hymn as the uh, call to worship this, this morning. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. Now, how do we know that God, uh, that's not protecting Moses from the rocks or from an earthquake or from the storm around him or whatever? It's, it's a spiritual protection. He's protecting Moses from himself. And that's maybe a hard concept to understand, especially if you're not sure of the Old Testament. He's protecting Moses from his glory that man can't handle until Jesus comes. The hymn Rock of Ages talks about that incident. It says, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, Let me hide myself in thee. Now, how do we know he's talking about spiritual things? The hymn writer is talking about spiritual things because of the rest of the verse. Let the water and the blood from the riven side which flowed. He's talking about Jesus' side that was pierced by a spear while he was on the cross, when he died on the cross, and blood and water came out. Let the water and the blood from the riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. The guilt of sin and the power of sin. Rock of Ages. Moving on to verse 8. We see the promise of instruction and guidance that that God is speaking through David. God forgives someone. He isn't just going to let them go off to fall into sin again. But he sends the Holy Spirit to protect us from that, to guide us. And he, we have his word. If we stay in his word and are open to the Holy Spirit's leading, we can avoid sin. But verse 9 also contains a warning. It says, Don't be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be, must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. So uh, Proverbs 26, verse 3 says, A whip for the horse, a halter for the donkey, and a rod for the backs of fools. Rather than being like a rebellious animal and being forced to obey, he wants us to come willingly and follow him. So the psalm teaches us that. And now the human response. We are not sinless. We ought to remember that. 
Notice verse 1, David does not say, blessed are those who never sin. He said, blessed are those whose sin is covered, is forgiven. We are not the sinless, we are the forgiven. Happy is the man who is forgiven of his sins. So our happiness doesn't come from our own actions, our own achievements, but from God's gracious actions on our behalf. It means being open to his instruction and trusting in him rather than ourselves. So what other response is there other than to worship him? Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, we sang, my great Redeemer's praise. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. We rejoice by remembering we are forgiven and freed from the hypocrisy and the penalty of sin. Confession is essential to our honest, open relationship with God and is essential to our spiritual, mental, and emotional well-being. The reason God does not charge or impute our sins to us is because he's already charged it to someone else. He imputed or counted or charged all our sin against his son, Jesus Christ. So it was all counted against him rather than against us. In the cross, we see God's heart. And so this is really why Jesus came. Not for a more meaningful life or a more fulfilling life, even though he did say, I've come to bring life, give you life and have it more abundantly. It was not to improve our relationships or our marriage. It was not to take care of our worldly troubles. And believe it or not, it was not to bring world peace. Jesus even said as much. Some people think, oh, why don't we have world peace? What's the matter with the Christians? There's no world peace. That's not why Jesus came. I think there's a great example right from Jesus' own mouth. John 12, 27. This is just before he, the Last Supper, before he's about to die. And he says this, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. What was the reason? He came to die. Is confessing out loud humbling? Sure. Does it build up our self-esteem? Probably not. But our identity, and we hear a lot about identity these days, has nothing to do with our own efforts. It's about our identity is from God's faithfulness in forgiving and renewing us and making us his children. It's really about to to whom we belong. So almost every Sunday, we have a prayer of confession in our worship time here at Sierra. Is this just a ritual that we do every week? We do a silent confession. We normally, as I said, we do this at the beginning of the service, but I thought it would be really good after hearing about confession to take that time now. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to stand up and confess something that you've been hiding out loud. But whether silent or verbal, and whether it's a specific sin or whether it's just to acknowledge that we are poor and needy and we can't save ourselves and we need God's redemption. He needs God's power to save us, whatever it is, to take some time and do that. 
I hope it's not just a ritual, that when we have that time in our worship services, that we really can bring things before the Lord, whether silent or not, or whispered, whatever. Or if there's a time, I would encourage you, if there's a time after you leave here, this week, this month, well, which is almost over, okay, next month, um, that, that you can find a place where you and God are really alone and say it out loud if it's, if it's something that big, like what David went through, or not even that big, or just your own feeling of wondering who you are, that you need Jesus. It's the awareness that we need his salvation. So we're going to take some time right now just to pray silently and pray that this is not just a ritual to go through while we're all waiting for... Just going to sit there in silence until somebody says amen. But to bring ourselves before the Lord. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you are have that father of the prodigal son. That your prodigal sons and daughters return to you and you are there waiting for them. So we pray, Lord, that you hear our prayers and come, and come to us and your Holy Spirit guide us and instruct us and we would experience your forgiveness and your love. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promises in your word. We thank you that you are here for us. We thank you for that blessed assurance that is in your word that we have because of your faithfulness and the examples in your word. So help us to continue to draw near with true hearts and humble ourselves before you and experience the joy, the happiness, and the release of the burden of your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.